0: Father, as we come to your word this afternoon, please help us, help us to be honest about ourselves. Lord, please reveal in us the truth of your word and Lord, we pray that it would cause us to cling to the almighty saviour. Amen. We need to address the elephant in the room. Wonder how that... Phrase makes you feel, whether you're familiar with it, whether you've heard it used before, when you hear it, even as I say it then, does it make you feel slightly on edge, slightly nervous, a bit awkward, as though something difficult has to be spoken of? You probably don't remember or know the name Professor Robert Kelly. But I'm almost sure that most of you will remember his story. He was interviewed on live television... Uh, on the BBC. He was sat at home in his study, uh, pristine, all looking good, asked about some economic climate question, and halfway through this live interview on live television, the door opens. In toddles his lost little daughter, followed closely by uh, another baby uh, in the walker. Now, it was a genius moment because the interview kind of carried on. It stumbled, obviously, the interviewer first saw the children he wasn't aware, maybe he was trying to block it out, um, it, they tried to carry on but it was so obvious it needed to be addressed it carried on and the the um, partner uh, wife maybe, uh, walked into the room to collect children and sweep them off um, the, probably the most genius moment about it was um, this moment where she's about to get the children, she gets the children and she's trying to Sneak back out of the room and shut the door without turning back again. So she's kind of like reaching back in to grab the door. And it was, it was awkward, but genius. And obviously it went viral pretty quickly. Um, most of you will have seen the video. But what was funny, what made the interview particularly funny is that it was not addressed. They just needed to address what was going on. See, it was a bit awkward that they didn't address... The elephant in the room, or the two children. But maybe you'll know the awkwardness of something that needs to be addressed that's far more serious. A cloud hanging over a relationship that that really needs to be addressed, or an unspoken issue in the workplace that's making things toxic that just needs to be spoken about. Or... An issue in a group of friends that that because it's not spoken of, it becomes difficult. I wonder if you know that feeling with God. When you've seriously let God down, you've been ignoring him, you've done something against him, you know you need to address him and it feels like the hardest thing to do. Maybe you come this afternoon and that's exactly how you're feeling it was even difficult to come to church because of something that's gone on something that you've said or thought or done maybe you get that feeling from time to time when you know you do things that don't honour God or maybe you're here and you wouldn't say you're trusting Jesus at the moment you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and, and there's some nagging doubt that there needs to be something addressed. This is exactly where we rejoin Isaiah in chapter 33. Maybe if you were here with us as we looked at chapters 1 to 12 on Zoom, you'll remember they they gave us a bit of an insight into the whole book. Isaiah, a prophet, is appointed by God to speak to God's people on God's behalf. And at first it looks pretty hopeless. It's Lots of despair, because God's people again and again and again fail him. Isaiah 6, maybe you remember, the vision in the temple, where Isaiah sees God's glory, all its holiness, and he looks down and sees himself, and he's made so aware of how hideously sinful he is. That's the picture of what we see, God's own people, hideous. Isaiah, as he writes, he's so pictorial, isn't he? Because he's been given a picture from God. And and we see it so many times. God's people are cut down like a tree. The, The city walls are knocked down to rubble. It's awful. It looks hopeless. But we see in chapter 11, where we left, that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There's hope from despair. In chapter 13 to 27, a big chunk that we're missing, Isaiah records pictures of God reigning and ruling supreme over the nation. It's like he steps back and goes big picture of the future, of God supreme over the nations. But we're rejoining in this section from 28 onwards we're looking at 33 today but from 28 onwards it kind of picks up with the narrative of Jerusalem, God's city maybe you remember before Ahaz was the king of Judah he was the picture of a hopeless king we got these funny little sentences like Ahaz he shook like a tree in the wind he was flimsy well well Where Ahaz looked disappointing, Hezekiah, the new king that we pick up with, it looks like there's hope. He's set on seeking the Lord and and honouring him. There's all the hope that we left off with of the prophecies of chapters 11 and 12. There's great hope, but there's still a problem. What's the elephant in the room? What is it? that needs addressing, well, God's little nation, they've become overwhelmed by Assyria, the, the superpower nation in the context of huge warfare. Now, God's promised to help them, but instead of accepting God's help, they've said no. They've tried to go elsewhere, they've gone to Egypt for help. So Assyria, we've got this huge, big superpower in the context of massive war, are squeezing in on God's little city, Jerusalem. And the king, Hezekiah, he's trying to sort it out himself. So although he he looked hopeful as a king that honours God, he's trying to sort it out. He, in fact, tries to buy off the Assyrians. What he did is he withdraws money from the temple treasury, he strips down all God's stuff in God's place and tries to use it to literally buy their way out of the situation you can imagine maybe like a scene from Lord of the Rings where the invading armies are all across the landscape and there's Hezekiah with some officials in a room in a high tower in Jerusalem and they send all this wealth and riches out from the city, out towards the commander of the armies and they're sat Waiting, Hoping that it's going to be enough to pay them off. They're waiting. They're waiting. It's humiliating. It's God's stuff that is dishonouring to God. But in that moment, they're not even ashamed because they're just desperate for freedom. But it all goes wrong. Assyria takes the bribe and plans to attack anyway. The people in Judah... In this city, that God's people, they're left with nothing. They've disobeyed God, they've dishonoured God, they've left all their riches, they've got this army, this superpower encroaching on them, and they've left with nothing. This is the elephant in the room. God is rightly exasperated with them. So as we come to chapter 3, the couple of chapters before we see already how God's exasperated with his people see the first word of chapter three ah it's like the 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 perfect word to show us God's exasperation ah and we've seen it four times already in the few chapters before it's an audible exhale of God's frustration with his people just flick through with me I'm going to put it up on the screen as well But just flick through with me the first couple of verses of the previous chapters. 28 verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. 29 verse 1. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Chapter 30 verse 1. Ah! Stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. Chapter 31, verse 1. Ah! To those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel, or consult the Lord. God is exasperated with his people. In the face of the oncoming Assyrian superpower, what do the people do? They're drunk. They celebrate other religious festivals, even in God's temple. They're stubborn. They don't accept God's help. They refuse him. They go elsewhere to Egypt to look for help. Look, we get to the point here where Hezekiah, while it looked like there was loads of promise as he becomes king, he's still drawn to... Sorting out the solution himself, political alliances, instead of depending on God. But look, as we come to chapter 33, we get again that same word. Ah, this God's audible exhale of frustration. But here's the surprise. Look who he's addressing now. You destroyer. That's Assyria. That's the raging superpower that's coming to destroy everything. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed, it says verse 1. The question is, why is God's anger averted away from his people and to the oncoming Assyrians? Well... Because this is the voice of the people, remember Isaiah 's job is to speak on behalf of the people, sometimes what God has said, sometimes what the people are saying. Verse two, this is what the people are saying. O Lord, be gracious to us. we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in a time of trouble. Remember the context the God's people in absolute despair, oncoming armies. All manner of issues have gone everywhere. But God, what do they do? They address God. See, Isaiah 33, the people, their track record is not to repent. It's not to come before God when they're in trouble. No, they haven't been doing that time and time again when they're in the face of war. No, this is a last ditch ...effort to avoid disaster. They've got no other option. They can do no else. They're a mess. And yet... ...they do address God. Do you see the slight irony in what they say? Be our arm every morning. As if that's what they've been saying all along. What's happening is they're being completely overpowered. They've got nothing else. They're close to being completely destroyed... Their world is falling apart. They are a mess. And then they realise they must address God. When I was in year nine, I went on a school trip to Normandy in France. And I, I, thought, I thought very hard about whether or not to tell you this story because it is shameful. And... I don't really want to tell you, but it, it most helpfully, I think, shares exactly what we'll see. I um, went to Normandy, North France. I was at an awkward stage, you know, where you've got loads of friends and kind of none, and so I was friendly with lots of people in my year. Now, um, some boys in year nine had decided it was a genius, uh, genius idea to bring back fireworks from Normandy. ...to uh, the UK. Now, I got involved with this uh, bunch of boys... ...and I didn't buy any fireworks... ...but I did get involved... ...to the point of putting fireworks in my suitcase. Now, I, I remember... ...so vividly... ...standing in a bedroom... ...with other people there... ...and Mr Lewis, my head of year... ...going through my suitcase... ...pulling out fireworks... ...and looking at me in the eye... ...saying... Did you put these here? And I said, Yes, I did, sir. And what unfolded from that moment was so horrendous for me at that point. I had phone calls home, I was suspended from school, I spent the remainder of the trip uh, almost being handheld by a teacher, not allowed out of anyone's sight, always sat next to a teacher on a coach. It was it was the worst. But the worst of the worst was Mr Lewis phoning my parents from Normandy to tell them that I'd been trying to illegally smuggle fireworks back into the country. And I can look back now with a bit of a joke, but it is still genuinely painful because the, the, the most difficult thing was between the time where my parents found out and it was properly resolved with them. I can... Remember, so clearly pulling back into the front car park at Highfield School, sat next to a, a teacher and looking out the window and seeing the car of my parents. And I was sat in the chair waiting and wanting the ground to swallow, it, swallow me up. The last thing I wanted to do was to get off the bus. The last thing I wanted to do was look in the eyes of my parents because I was ashamed I would have done anything to avoid those moments. I didn't want to look at them. I didn't want to talk to them. I did not want to address the issue. I wonder, have you been avoiding addressing God? Have you been hiding something? Ashamed? Have you been... Fearing other voices, getting involved in other things that wouldn't honour God? Have you been trying to find joy and satisfaction in other things? Embarrassed to admit it? Scared to address it with God? Have you been deliberately hiding something from him? You may have been avoiding God for some time. Maybe deep down there's a real sense of guilt maybe right now you'd even say your world is falling apart. Isaiah's message to us here is you must address God. But see, just look at the way they address God, the people. This is the voice of God's people commenting on their own situation, what's happened in light of what they've done. This is them addressing God when they've let God down. This is them addressing God and admitting failure. Read with me from verse 7. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The travellers cease. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Sometimes in Isaiah, it's really helpful just to listen to the, to the words, to just close your eyes and listen to what it feels like, to get a picture of what's going on. Look, it's an absolute mess without God. They're admitting that. God, I've messed up. God, this is a mess. God, we've made a mess of this. Look at specifically what they admit to in verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? God is right. God is righteous and rightly angry with wrong. He can't just let it be. And, and so the people, they admit they have failed him. God's people, they've been humbled, they can do no else. But in this moment, when they're cut right back, they can do no, nothing else. They address God and they admit failure. They admit their brokenness. They admit they've made a mess. They've got it wrong. They were afraid of the Assyrian superpower more than the God. They thought they could sort themselves out by going to the Egyptians but they realise God is mighty and he should be feared above all else. Look at the feel of 7 and 8, verse 7 and 8. Heroes crying. Highways empty. The traveller static. Everything that looks impressive, that you'd love to be, that you'd love to get involved with, that looks interesting and amazing. Without God it's nothing it's a mess the things that we so often put our hope in leave us downcast and desperate that's the point in verse 9 that that not trusting god always damages human existence trying to find our joy our comfort our help in anywhere but god it will always Damage human existence. That maybe you've come to church this afternoon feeling guilty. Maybe these last few weeks you've been made aware of significant sin in your life. Maybe you come today and you know what it feels like to be a mess without God. Well, the message of the gospel, the good news of Isaiah and God's story for us is consistent. God saves sinners. There is hope from despair. It's good news because when we admit failure, it's then, when we acknowledge sin, we, we recognize that we failed God over and over again. When we're so aware that of our need for a Saviour, it's then that we don't need to be guilty. It's then that we don't need to feel ashamed because it's then that we'll be brought new life. We'll be renewed. It's then that we grasp God's sublime grace to us. Isaiah's message is be renewed. It's a bit like I said before of Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah has a vision of the Lord in the temple and at that moment he's so consumed by the glory of God, the throne room, that he looks down at himself and he can't bear his hideous sinfulness. But in that very same moment, not a second longer than it needs to is spent on himself, but it's drawn to the the throne room of God, the, the glory. It's drawn away from his hideous sin and to the throne. Look at verse 17 you will see the king in his beauty and the land that stretches afar. Until now, all that Judah's seen, all that the city has seen is a mess, how they've made a mess of God and his things, how they've made a real mess of the situation. All that they can see is the superpowers coming to rob them. All they can see is wrong but they're going to see something new. The eyes of their hearts will be enlightened to see the king and his beauty. They'll be safe from what was once overwhelming. They'll have escaped their tendency to be so stubborn in saying no. They'll realise their protection under the king. Look at verse 18. Your heart will muse on the terror. What was once all-consuming to them. Those men watching on taking the bribe and still attacking what was once so consuming on they'll muse on it, they'll go ah, where is he who counted, where is he who weighed the tribute where is he who counted the towers where are those people who took our gold and still wanted to kill us this is what we were this is what we were addicted to stubbornly rejecting God, addicted to trying to sort ourselves out, to trying to find our own salvation. But the message for us is today we can be renewed. Let me read this quote from Ray Ortland, a book I've been reading in. When our eyes behold the king in his beauty, we see everything else in his light. We break out of our nervous addiction to crisis and self-salvation and start to glorify and enjoy God. The Holy Spirit does this in us. He makes Jesus glorious to our hearts as we do hold him in the gospel. Looking at our lives with our focus on Christ as the only one finally to be reckoned with, the only one whose opinion really matters, we taste something of the peace, rest and joy of having itself. Look, maybe this afternoon, as... You listen in. As we look at this. Maybe you still feel guilty. Maybe your internal narrative is. I am an awful awful person. Maybe you feel like you're carrying a rucksack of burden. Maybe you still feel like you've let God down. Here's the brilliant news from Isaiah. Just look at verse 24. And. No inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. God will provide a way by which guilty people will be forgiven. We've looked at it twice already today. Isaiah 1 says, speaks of this promise. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. See, we today can say with renewed life when we address God and admit failure I am not sick I am not guilty the very words of verse 24 are the ones that we see in Leviticus 16 do you remember we looked um, at the day of atonement a few months back where God provided a way for the people's guilt to be dealt with the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area Well, we know now that the ultimate solution was Jesus, who bore the iniquity of others so far away that it it, is full and finally dealt with. Look, here's where it really matters for us today, tomorrow, going forward, when we still mess up. Your, Your happiness depends on this truth. God has provided a way that we are forgiven ah uh, we are forgiven our iniquity there is nothing hanging over our head isaiah's message for us today is this if you've never heard it before if you've been trusting it for years it's a message for today and every day address god admit failure be renewed let me pray father we thank you so much that the good news of the gospel that we re- read in all the pages of scripture that point towards the saving message of jesus is good news for failures like us lord please when we are reminded of how often we fail, when we fail, please would you help us to address you, to come quickly back to you. Father, please would you help us to admit failure. And Lord, as we do that, please would you help us to trust in your solution, the Lord Jesus, to be renewed. Lord, help us to have that joy and confidence That comes from knowing our iniquity is dealt with. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to sing together um, a song that speaks of just that Jesus paid it all. Let's sing.